right. Thank you, Pastor. Deuteronomy chapter 30 in your Bibles this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 30. What a delight to be back. Uh, we uh, have thoroughly enjoyed our meetings here before. Uh, we love uh, uh, coming to California. And it's good to be back in your state, but uh, to be back in the church here with uh, the God's people and uh, hungry hearts. And when you have conversations, even at the beginning of a meeting where we've just had a few minutes and begin to sense the, uh, what the Lord's already doing, that's, uh, that's a thrill. I'm encouraged about that uh, friend of pastors calling him. And all of that's, uh, that's a delight. That means God's on the move. That means God is aware. Obviously, he's aware, but sometimes he lets us know that he's aware. Otherwise, we uh, sometimes uh, get foggy in our thinking. So uh, that's a blessing. Well, this morning, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to dive right into this because, as Pastor mentioned, this is the only service where you have a little bit of time factor because you got the morning service. And so I don't want to go too long in Sunday school because I do not want to cut into the time of the morning preacher. <laughs> since that's me. <laughs> so that's one way to keep a guy short, schedule him after himself. But uh, at any rate, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30 in the Word of God this morning. Now Deuteronomy is an amazing book because the Lord Jesus himself quoted from this, ver uh, this book often. That's fascinating to me. Uh, not only that, uh, obviously earlier in Exodus we have the law and uh, the giving of the law, but Deuteronomy is the exposition of that. It brings the heart into it. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the loving the Lord your God with all your heart. I mean, that's the biggie. If you miss that, you've missed it all. And uh, then uh, uh, the, how that plays out and uh, some details. It's a, it's a beautiful book. And then you come just a couple of chapters prior to our text. And there's some chapters that are fascinating because there are, there's a list of blessings. We like those. And then there's a list of curses. <laughs> well, that's pretty sobering. And uh, so uh, that's what precedes our text here. We now come to the climax of the book. We're going to get into a couple of different uh, phrases here in chapter 30 here in a moment. But let's jump to the end of the chapter. So the chapter is the climax of the book. But let's go to the climax of the chapter. And, uh, of course, uh, God is giving his word here through Moses. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. What a verse. That both thou and thy seed, thy offspring, may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life. So he says, choose life, and then he tells us that's a person. And if you miss that, you miss it all. And that's going to come out in the next several days over and over again through various passages that the Lord will uh, lead us into. But it's an amazing truth. This is really almost like reading Colossians chapter 3, Christ who is our life. And here it is. It's Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy. Choose life for he, God, is your life. So I want to speak this morning on choose life, the revival option. Let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to open our understanding. Blessed Holy Spirit, we do thank you for the opportunity of this Sunday school hour. Thank you for these that have gathered here in this first hour today. Now, Lord, I pray that you would feel, fill the hungry soul with your goodness. Lord, that you'd open our understanding, that you'd quicken us uh, to receive what you have for us. Lord, that you would show us what we need to see. And Lord, show us the difference between this life and death and what all that means. And Lord, may we choose life. And Lord, I do pray that you would manifest your victory over the enemy. Even now, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the late 1800s, there was a pastor in the city of 
Glasgow, Scotland, by the name of James Elder Cumming. And uh, J. Elder Cumming, he went by. And he was quite a man. He had a uh, tremendous mind, a keen mind, that was good for debating. He had quite a personality. Uh, maybe he'd gotten a little thick skin. His wife uh, had died earlier in their marriage to a sickness, and he was kind of rough. And so uh, that was just his personality. In a debate, he absolutely delighted in shredding his opponent. <laughs> this was not a matter of winning. This was a matter of winning big. <laughs> and so uh, this is a bit of a picture of this guy named J. Elder Cumming. And in uh, fact, in the 1870s, early 1870s, D.L. Moody uh, made his famous trip into England and Scotland, and he met Jailer coming for the first time. And he walked away and he made a comment that somebody recorded, and here we are, 2022, and we're going to remember this comment. Moody said, after he met Cumming, that Cumming was the most cantankerous Christian he had ever met. <laughs> so here's, I don't know how much time they had together, I don't think it was a lot, and this was his takeaway that this pastor <laughs> was the most cantankerous Christian he had ever met. Can you imagine if uh, Moody were alive today, <laughs> and he talked to Moody, no, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, he talked to one of us, and then uh, walked away and made a comment, and somebody recorded it, and then 100 years later, people are talking about it. <laughs> and imp you know, Moody's impression of, of, of us. This was Moody's impression of this pastor. Cantankerous, fascinating. Well, in that same time period, there were a lot of conferences that were taking place. They were small ones over in the mainland of Europe. Uh, then they started some in the early 1870s in England uh, that actually were drawing big crowds. Uh, the Oxford Convention, the Brighton Convention, and they would announce these, these conventions, we would say conference, and it was they, 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 the theme was on the difference between life in the spirit and life in the flesh. And so uh, 3,000 people would descend with just three weeks notice on a town like Oxford, and they would spend a week at one of these conventions. So obviously God was on the move. They didn't have modern transportation, and for 3,000 to come and take a week off at three weeks' notice, there was, there was, there was a hunger. There was something going on. Well, a uh, man up in uh, the Lake District of Eng England in a town called Keswick, it looks like Keswick, that's pronounced Keswick, uh, he uh, pastored up there, and he had been to some of the other conventions and was deeply blessed. God opened his eyes because he was just one of these guys that was ritualistically going through the motions of doing church and doing Christianity. And then he began to understand life in the Spirit, where the Spirit imparts to you the very life of a person whose name is Jesus, uh, bringing that life stream from the throne right into you. And so he was so stirred, he started a convention in 1875. For whatever reason, that one took hold and became an annual convention. And uh, uh, for a period of uh, years, it was greatly blessed of the Lord. And uh, so uh, uh, people would come and, and uh, they were greatly blessed. Well, J.R. Cumming, he hadn't been to any of these. And when the Keswick Convention got going and was being blessed of the Lord, uh, he was critical. I mean, why be kind when you can be critical? <laughs> and so he was just, you know, he was typical cantankerous. J. Elder Cumming, you know, what kind of convention is it? I'm sure the theology's off, and he just was very negative, and that's kind of just the way he was, but he hadn't been there, but he was very negative and critical about it. Well, we move into the 1880s, so not a conference where the convention's been going seven or eight years, and one summer he got to thinking, you know, there's a lot of uh, Bible conferences going on. Uh, I should go to one. Then he got to thinking, I should go to that one I've been criticizing. 
and see for myself what's going on down there. That's the one that kind of was gaining momentum. And so he went. Now, they, it was a week long, you know, Monday morning to like Friday night. And uh, he got there a couple days early. And when he got there, one of the, a, a lady saw him in town. He didn't know her. She recognized him. And she came running across the street and she said, are you J. Elder Cumming? He said, well, yes, ma'am, I am. She said, oh, <laughs> it's so good to see you here. <laughs> <laughs> and he thought, well, this place really is strange. I'm not sure I'm going to enjoy this at all. And, uh, well, Monday, what they do is they would have uh, four or five speakers in, and each one had a slot, like 9 a.m., you know, 10.30, and, and uh, that kind of thing uh, throughout the week. And the, uh, the men that they were having by that uh, point were men like F.B. Meyer. And uh, uh, G. G. Campbell Morgan got in on this for a number of years, and A.T. Pearson, and A.J. Gordon, and uh, uh, these kinds of the voices were the ones that were coming in and uh, speaking. And later on, you had Andrew Murray and R.A. Torrey and uh, uh, Hudson Taylor and so forth. But in the 1880s, you would have had some of these other men. And so uh, they had a theme for each day, and each preacher would preach on that theme. So that meant four or five times in one day you heard four or five messages on that one theme. And then they switch themes to the next day. That's just how they did it. Well, the whole convention is on life in the spirit. It's the deepening of spiritual life where you access the Holy Spirit himself. And so on the first day, they deal with that which hinders our fellowship with God. They deal with the need uh, that mankind has, even Christians, uh, when it comes to caving into sins and tolerating them in our lives. And they would not so much deal with the obvious sins because they're obvious. They dealt with the sins of the converted life, to use their wording. The things we often overlook like bitterness and irritability. I'm sure that doesn't affect anyone here. <laughs> uh, and things like this. This is what they would deal with. Uh, self-righteousness and self-dependence. And by the end of the day, coming thought, this is ridiculous. <laughs> what kind of preaching is this? Uh, you know, of course, they were nailing him to the wall. But uh, he, he, just, he just thought, this is, I, you know, he was very typical, cantankerous, critical, jailed or coming. Well, the second day, he thought, well, I'm here. I might as well go. Well, the second day, they switched themes. They moved from the problem of sin to the solution of Jesus. <laughs> And all day long, they lifted up Jesus, not as just salvation going to heaven, but as sanctification, as heaven on earth. And uh, all day long, they just kept lifting up the provision. That would be the big word that they would use, the provision of Jesus who lives in you to impart his holy life to you so that you experience his victorious life. And by the end of that day, I mean, he couldn't be critical. He can't be critical of Jesus. He knew that much. And so, but he was puzzled. This did not fit in with his theological grid. Uh, he, 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 didn't, he didn't understand. And, and so now he's perplexed. But he's no longer critical. So the third day, they switched to the faith response that is the right response to the provision. The surrender to Jesus as the Lord of your life and the power for everything in your life. And by the end of that day, Cumming had some questions. And one of the men that uh, was a regular there, his name is Evan Hopkins. He pastored in Richmond, England, saw re revival in his church, a tremendous uh, uh, author. And uh, Hopkins 
uh, he could tell that Hopkins was a, a thinker and a theologian. So uh, Cumming, being a theologian himself, walked up to Hopkins and said, hey, uh, you're a theologian like myself. May I ask you some questions? And of course, Hopkins was happy to feel that and Cumming began to just fire away. Now, in those conventions, they would have what they called inquirers conversational meetings. We would call it a Q&A time, <laughs> but uh, that was their wording. And uh, <laughs> Hopkins was the master. In fact, when you read his biography, uh, they give you examples of how he would field these questions. One person would ask, well, obviously, there's probably a host of others that had the same question in their mind. And he was a master at taking uh, a Bible truth and giving that just short paragraph of preachment uh, to answer that question, and their eyes would be opened. But when Cumming asked him these questions, he took a different approach. This is called being led by the Spirit. And instead of giving that little bit of preachment based on a Bible truth, all he answered with were God's words, period. No preachment of them, just the words of Scripture. Because the Holy Spirit knew that coming could not argue with those words. And by the end of that conversation, that dear man was shaken to the core. And he went to his room, and he got on his knees, began to just seek the Lord. What is this? And what are you saying to me? And the Spirit of God began to bring things to his mind, probably from Monday, things that were in the way, those sins of the converted life. And coming in his typical debate fashion, began to debate with the Holy Spirit. These are not sins. <laughs> and the Spirit of God said, well, what are they? <laughs> and are they worthy of a child of God? And coming said, no, no, they're not. And so the Spirit of God bore witness with his spirit. Are you willing to give them up? Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to trust me for the victory? And Jailer coming was faced with a choice. And he chose life. <laughs> and as he sided with what the Holy Spirit was speaking, then the Spirit of God showed him another layer of issues. And as he dealt with those, then the Spirit of God showed him a deeper layer of issues. You know, some of us are like onions. There's lots of layers uh, that have to be dealt with. And uh, uh, he was on his knees for several hours, coming clean with God. The next day, they moved from that faith response to the Spirit-filled life, where the Spirit fills you with the holy life of Jesus. And they said that his countenance was observably altered, that he was just radiating the Lord, and that there was joy in his heart, and the scowl and the, and the contentious cantankerousness was gone. And then uh, on Friday, they switched to applying the life of the Spirit to, the, to service, and uh, he couldn't stay. He, he was burdened because there were people that he needed to get right with. He wasn't used to doing that uh, back in Glasgow. And so he just felt like he couldn't stay any longer, and he went back up to Glasgow, and he made these matters right with certain individuals. He'd never done that before. And he wrote in his journal that he was experiencing the joy of the Lord on a level he had never experienced before in his life as a believer. Well, it didn't just last a few days because eight or nine years later, D.L. Moody came back into Scotland. And he met coming a second time. And he walked away and made a comment and somebody wrote it down for us to remember. <laughs> this was his comment. What ever happened to coming? <laughs> he said, I've never seen a man so altered, so full of the love of God. Now think of the contrast between these comments. In the early 1870s, it was, this is the most cantankerous Christian I've ever met. Eight or nine years later, it's so full 
of the love of God, something radically changed. There was revival in this man's heart. And it's because he chose life. Now, friends, that is the challenge that our text gives us here. It's New Testament truth. It's right here in the Old Testament. It's an amazing passage. Now, what is the basis for choosing life? I want us to see in the text uh, just uh, uh, four different uh, thoughts here that form the basis for choosing life. Number one is the revival principle. I mentioned I have these blessings and cursings in the previous chapters. And so in verse 1 of chapter 30, it says, And it shall come to pass that when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse. In other words, this is prophetical at this point. That the nation of Israel would go through the blessings, and they did, under David and Solomon. And then uh, eventually they would get to the curse and go into captivity, which they did years later. And all of that played out. And God is saying that when this happens, and thou call them to mind. In other words, what I've told told you here in the book of the law and you remember you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord thy God hath driven thee and thou shalt return unto the Lord thy God there's your big phrase return unto the Lord your God and shalt obey his voice into the verse with all thine heart and with all thy soul that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and return and gather thee okay so you have a principle here Come to your senses and return to the Lord. And guess what? He will return to you. It's the same truth we have in James. Draw nigh to God and he will draw near to you. You see, return to the Lord. Now notice, to the Lord. It's not to a set of rituals. It's not to a box. It's a person. And the person is often who gets left out in our grids of thinking. You see, it's returning to the Lord, which means it's faith because he's the object of our faith and you're returning to him. And faith is the one thing we can do because faith is not a work. It's dependence upon the worker. You see, even when you're thinking, oh man, I just, I, I, I know I need to get right with God. I, I know I'm so far off. I know I'm so mucked up. Uh, uh, things are a mess, uh, but I, I just don't feel it. I can't do it. Well, God gave you a truth to help you when that's the case. And I've needed it a few times, I'll tell you that. It is the second to the last verse of the book of Lamentations. And Jeremiah, under, under inspiration, says, Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. If you find in your heart thinking, I just can't return to the Lord, it'd be fake. Well, then just ask God to turn you to the Lord. And guess what? That's a turn. <laughs> turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. When you turn, God returns, and he meets you right there because God prefers to revive rather than to judge. That's who he is. And so here's this revival principle. You return to the Lord. You recognize, wait a second, I'm way off. See, all of that implies you're just getting honest. There's this in my life. There's this in my life. You're getting honest about the muck and the sin that's in the way. And, and you're saying, God, I need you. And when you do that, God says, then... I will turn your captivity. You know, sometimes we get in bondage. We've gone some route. We have some habit, whether it's just an entrenched bitterness and anger or whether it's some vice or addiction or whatever the case may be, God says, I'll bring you out of that prison. You return to me and I will return to you. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pull you out of that captivity because Jesus said he came to set captives free. 
And when we find ourselves in bondage to anger, to bitterness, to lust, to addiction, to vice, whatever the case may be, when you return to God, he's the one who knows how to bring us out of that prison and set us free. And he says, I will have compassion on you. I will return to you. It's a marvelous thing. Return to the Lord and he will return to you. That's the revival principle. Secondly, notice the revival miracle. Verse 6, and the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart. Let me word it this way. He'll do surgery, but notice, on your heart and the heart of your offspring to love the Lord your God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that you might live. You return to the Lord. He returns to you, and he does a surgery that is needed because we can't do this on our own. It's supernatural. He does a surgery on our heart. I love this. This, this is what it says. So that you love him. We can't just create this on our own. <laughs> we can try to fake it and whatever, but that's not the same as that real deal. But when you are actually turning to God, Casting yourself on God. He, with that divine surgical hand, touches your heart. So there's a love response. Because that's the key to it all. <laughs> and he says, I will do this so that you love. And when you love, notice the end of the verse, you live. That's just a byproduct. Most of us focus on that. No, you focus on him. And when you do, then he does this work in your heart. So there's a love response. And when you love God, you start living the way God intends. That's what happened to Jailer coming. He went from that cantankerous to being full of the love of God. How did that happen? It's what this verse says. God did the revival surgery in his heart. You know... When you love, then you live. When you love God, actually, at that point, you can start loving people. Because otherwise, we get pretty ticked at them. <laughs> Maybe you don't. <laughs> but I do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but when you love God, then all of a sudden, there's the overflow of the love of God. And you have this right view toward other people, even the ornery ones. And it says you live. You, 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 life resumes. Growth, life, live, resumes. You see, lack of revival hinders growth. Revival restores the growth process as a byproduct of you getting your focus back on God, who's the giver of life. You see, it does not make you spiritually mature overnight. It restores the maturity process. See, sin, unbelief, the, the, the normal growth is blocked. And you'll see people grow to a point and then... Something happens where they say no to him and growth stops. Well, when they say yes to him again, then the growth would resume. It doesn't make them spiritually mature. They don't jump decades. They start growing again in that normal process of growth in grace, as we would say it in the New Testament. So that's the revival miracle, this, this touch from God. Thirdly, there's the revival nearness. I love this. Look at the end of verse 10. If thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. So that's what we've been talking about. You're turning to God, the person, with all your heart. And nothing in the way. You're, you're bankrupt on God. Okay, here is what happens. For this commandment. Now, don't miss it. When we think of commandment, we think, okay, give me the list of all the things to do and don't do. No, the commandment here that he's referring to is returning to the Lord, which is faith. 
This commandment, this faith, looking back to God, returning back to God, returning to the Lord, is what it just said. For this commandment, which I command me this day, is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. See, the reason it's not far off is because it's faith, and faith is not a work. You don't have to climb Mount Everest and plant the, plant the flag of, you know, fundamentalism or whatever. No, you just turn back to God. Ah, that's faith. Faith is not a work, which means you can do this. You don't have to be saved and growing for 30 years to exercise faith. Faith is what it took to get saved. Faith is how you take your first step of growth when you're a newborn believer in Christ. You see, it's that simple. That's why it's near. It's near. And he makes it very clear. It's not inaccessible. As he says in verse 11, it's not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. And then he gets even more specific. It's not too high. Look at verse 12. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. You see, anytime there's an atmosphere of Christianity that has this elite status where the majority feel like, well, I'll never reach that. It's too high. That atmosphere is not of the Holy Spirit. It's false religion, even in evangelical churches, where they're on their way to heaven. It's false religion for sanctification, where there's this created atmosphere, this elite lofty status that only a few people can reach. It's just for the qualified. And everybody else says, man, you're a bunch of ragamuffins. <laughs> Well, that atmosphere is wrong because everybody's thinking, I'll never measure up. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus measured up for you. Just access him. <laughs> That's how you measure up because he lives in you. And see, he says it's not too high. And then he says it's not too far. Look at verse 13. Neither is it beyond the sea. You guys know about the sea as good as anybody. <laughs> uh, we enjoyed seeing the Pacific Ocean the other day. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it again? It's not out of reach. See, if, if our focus shifts from God to a checklist of do's and don'ts, that might be good things. Usually are. <laughs> Sometimes not, but... Often, yes, it's the wrong focus. Because when you focus on the, the list, it, it, it gets out of reach. Because you know what we do? We keep adding to the list. You should have seen my list in my early years, man. <laughs> that thing, it got longer and longer. I mean, I, you know, I, had, you know, I was going to be the farthest to the right. Well, there's a little bit of pride in that, like maybe a lot of pride. And uh, so to be farthest to the right, you've got you to be stricter than anybody. Man, I had that stuff down. The problem was I couldn't live it. I developed a list that was out of reach. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now, don't get me wrong. God wants us to live right. Grace is never the excuse to sin. But the focus has to be on a person if you're going to live right. <laughs> now, Lord willing, tonight, we're going to dive into that because I think one of the greatest mistakes well-meaning people make in many churches but definitely in that which I've been privy to in the last 30 years in Baptist churches, many of them, one of the greatest mistakes we make is we get off focus and don't even know we're off focus. I want to show you that. We're going to go through kind of a diagnosis tonight because you're thinking, well, that's not me. Well, you might be surprised. And so uh, that means you've got to miss the football game. But if that's what we're going to look at tonight. <laughs> 
I just had to sneak that in. <laughs> I think it'll be better than the game. Now, not me, but the truth. The truth is marvelous. The truth is marvelous. Over my journey, there's certain truths. I can tell you what year and what the truth was where God just rocked my boat. Well, the most recent one was 2020, and it's the truth we're going to look at tonight. It's an amazing uh, 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 truth in regard to this matter of focus. So at any rate, uh, looking at this, he says it's not too high. It's not too far. It's not inaccessible, but it's accessible. Look at verse 14. But the word is very nigh unto thee. In thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. Now, what word is he talking about? Well, you remember verse 11, the beginning of this flow, said this commandment. And we saw that that was referring to the end of verse 10, returning to the Lord, faith. This word is very near you. Did you know that there is a passage in the New Testament that quotes that verse? It's in the book of Romans. Does anybody know what chapter? It says, the word is nigh you, and it quotes this verse, making a slight tweak, which is very interesting, under inspiration. It's Romans chapter 10, which says, that is the word of faith. Oh, well, we just saw that that's what it was, this commandment referring to returning to the Lord. It says in Romans that this word is nigh you, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That is referring to this passage. And in Romans, it's applied to salvation, saying salvation is not far away. Jesus paid it all. He did the work. Your responsibility is faith. That's why it's near. That word of faith is near. Why? Because it's just trusting Jesus who did all the saving for you. Now, what's fascinating is what is applied to salvation in Romans 10. In our context, the uh, original context is revival. He's talking to the children of Israel. They've already met the Lord. They've already been redeemed out of Egypt. This is that generation. That's just a few months before. Now, the fact of the matter is, the reason why it's near is that faith is not a work. And friends, just like salvation is not hard. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. It was hard for him, but not us. Do you know sanctification is the same way? But see, if you take your focus off of Jesus and you put it on all the, all the, the stuff and we, and we make it ritualistic instead of relational, that's when it gets hard. And so that's when we take faith out of it. And when you take faith out of it, you miss grace. We're going to dive into that in the next hour. Uh, because you got to have that. You see, the word of faith. Now, I recognize in our day there's what's called a word of faith movement. So let me just explain the difference. The word of faith movement, there's some dear, dear, well-meaning people in this, but they are, I believe, misled on this. They're just saying, you know, because it says right here, that is, you know, you speak that word of faith, and buddy, you're saved, that's Romans, and then over here there's revival. Okay, what they do is just say, you just speak what you want to, and you bring it into being. You bring it into, in, into being. In other words, name it and claim it. What they're leaving out is, it's not just this magical genie, name it and claim it, and create stuff. Yes, stuff gets created by God. Yes, when you speak the word of faith, but only when he first stirred you to say, this is what I want you to trust me for. See, when God stirs you, he's naming it. That's the only time we get to go in and claim it. 
Nobody gets saved unless God convicts them. And none of us trust God for anything unless he stirs us to trust him. The fact is, he's stirring us all the time. But the reality is, it's not us like we're in the driver's seat here and we become these little gods. No, he's God. Our response is always a response. <laughs> it is the faith response to when the Spirit stirs us. You see, in God's economy of grace, the cash is always faith. And in that economy of grace, it's like a, uh, it's, it's like a sandwich. I have a dear pastor's wife who calls it the grace sandwich. <laughs> uh, where God stirs you, then faith responds, and then God brings it to pass. But see, that's just it. God stirs you. He names it. Then faith responds and claims it. And then, of course, God does it. And so that's why all of this is powerful because our part of this is faith. But faith has to be responding to God. <laughs> that's why you got to be looking at the right person and uh, uh, so on. And so when we look to him, yes, he stirs us. And when we respond, he enables us. And he says, this is near. Do you know if you're not right with God this morning, you can get right with God now. <laughs> it's not going to take, you know, 30 days of whatever. There's some great journals out there, but when it comes to revival, it doesn't take 30 days. You just get honest. <laughs> and you own what's in the way, and the blood of Jesus cleans you up, and you look to Jesus. See, as you're looking to him to, to you know, because you're, you're, you're getting honest, hey, this is all in the way, but I'm looking back to you, bam! The blood of Jesus comes in and cleanses you, and the Spirit of Jesus fills you. And just like the blood, as I read this morning, Leviticus 14 was applied to the lepers, and then the oil was put on the blood. In the same way, when we get honest, the blood cleanses from that leprosy of sin, and the oil is the Spirit thou filling us so that we're revived, we're relifed. <laughs> ah, beautiful. So, Personal revival is right there. Now, corporate revival's a little bit different because it's based on a promise. And whenever there's a promise, it's not immediate because if it's will be, it's not is. <laughs> but the personal revival truth is it's immediately available for those who will apply the truth we're looking at. See, it's near. And then finally, there's the revival choice. Back to where we started. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. And then he tells us in verse 20, he is your life. You're choosing a person. See, the Christian life is not a set of doctrines. The Christian life is not a set of moral actions. Unsaved moralists have that. The Christian life is a life. <laughs> this is deep, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's a person. You see, Jesus is the Christian life himself. Which means... None of us can live the Christian life on our own because the Christian life is Jesus. You ignore Jesus and this isn't going to work. But see, when you got saved, here's the good news. The Christian life himself moved into you. A divine someone moved into a human someone so that you can live, yet not you, but Christ in you, the Christian life. He moved in to live his life, not ours. And it's when we just kind of do what we want, then we miss out on him, though he's there. But when we lose our life because we're choosing his, that's when we find our life now animated by the eternal life himself, taking the vapor of our life and connecting it to the eternal life, making the vapor of our life count for all of eternity future. It's amazing. He is your life. Now, 
If you just have two choices, now we live in a world where there's, you know, a thousand choices. But God narrows this down to two, life and death. <laughs> it's a pretty easy choice, don't you think? I mean, it's hard to miss the multiple choice on this one. Because <laughs> we're wired to want life. <laughs> I mean, look at all the people scrambling with all that's going on in our world today trying to prolong life. Okay, so when it comes to the spiritual truth that we're talking about here, this is an easy choice. But here's what we've got to see. Do you know that any choice, any choice other than Jesus the person is death? Even if it looks good. See, this is what I want us to see tonight. We can get slightly off focus from the person and focus on stuff that looks so good. A good outcome. But when you focus on it instead of him, you never get to that outcome. And we'll see why tonight. The fact of the matter is, we've got to choose him because any other choice is death. Not just the obvious wickedness things. I'm talking even self-righteousness. I'm talking about where we add to the word of God. I'm talking about where we get from relationship with the person who keeps really certain things simple and then we make it very ritualistic. But when you get to the person, by the way, you do have the right outcome. It's always, it's always right. It's fascinating how this works, but the key is how do you get there? It's the right focus. It's the right person. You've got to choose the person. You choose life. That's what happened to J. Elder Cumming. And immediately, the life of Jesus was now animating him, and the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus is love. And Moody said, I've never seen a man so changed, so altered, so full of the love of God. And that love includes joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. I think we dealt with that on the last sermon that I was here last time. I'm sure you remember it with all of the details. But uh, there is this expression of love himself. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. So choose life. Wouldn't it be tragic? Wouldn't it be tragic to get to the end of our lives as we think of it in the physical sense? And realize that we missed out on what mattered most. See, that's why we got to get to the person. Why? Because he is the perfect leader. He has perfect wisdom. He knows exactly where you are. He knows what's needed in your experience, your family, your setting, your workplace, your responses to that ordinary boss and all those things. He knows all of that. See, get to him and you'll have the right leadership to navigate. And you'll have the right power to do it. Years ago, when I was a kid, there was a family in our church. They had a big family. They had a farm. Believe it or not, this is western suburbs of Chicago. The farm sold now. It's all houses. But they had this farm in the middle of all this growing suburbia of Chicago. And uh, so they had a little lake in their backyard. And in the wintertime, when it would freeze, uh, they, would, uh, you know, they would actually get their tractor and plow it. And then we'd have an ice hockey rink. And so we'd play ice hockey. And the oldest son, I, I, I'd never met him because he had rebelled and gone his own way. But the other kids, uh, we knew them all. They were in the church, in the Christian school. Uh, that's when that whole movement was starting and so forth. And, and we'd go play hockey back there. And one day, that oldest brother was there. Man, the guy could skate. <laughs> and uh, he could play hockey. All these kids were unbelievable athlete, athletes. I've never seen a family with just such built-in automatic athletic bodies. Uh, but they had them. And I thought, wow, that guy can play. Well, that's the first time I saw him. 
And I didn't see him again until years later. So that was high school. I went off to college, went to grad school, came back, was now assistant pastor to my dad. I'm sitting on the platform. My dad's uh, got up to getting ready to get up and preach. And that guy walks into our auditorium. Western suburbs of Chicago. He comes about a third of the way down, a long, narrow auditorium, and he sits down on the aisle. My dad preached. In the invitation, nobody came except that guy because God was already working on him. And he comes down that aisle. He got on his knees on the front row. And he chose life. And God did something for that guy's heart. Do you know that that guy calls me every Tuesday? He prays for all of our meetings. He's praying for this meeting. That was 30 years ago when he chose life. Wow, that's what God does. Choose life. You never know where God will take it. But that's not the point. Just choose him and it'll be right. Let's bow our heads for prayer.